Welcome to another At The Flick Short. In this podcast short, we are returning to a recording we made back in September with Nick Wilkes. Nick is the playwright in residence at the Malvern Theatre. We had such a great time interviewing Nick that we ended up with a lot more material than we could ever possibly use in our main show. So we decided to split the interview into two parts. The parts relating to his cinema memories we included in our October podcast and Nick's stories and recollections about his time in the theatre have been collected into this short. We hope you enjoy this second helping of the wit and wisdom of the Malvin Bard as much as we did. So without any further ado, over to you, Jeff. Hello, and today your At The Flicks team are in the fantastic Great Malvin Hotel. We are here to meet Nick Wilkes, very talented Mr Wilkes, who's an actor, playwright, writer, musician, and various other things. Very busy, and thank you for your time today, Nick. And also has a site that's well worth checking out called malvinbard.com. Is that correct, Nick? Yeah, malvinbard.com, yeah. that's right. Nick, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm well. I'm old, I'm grey, but I'm well. I'm still standing. And the youngest around this table. I'm breathing in and out. Yeah, I can't complain, really. When we first met, you were honing some of your technical skills at the sadly now long gone Cheltenham Odeon. Yeah. What are your memories of that place? Oh, the Odeon in Cheltenham. I loved it. Everyone loved it. I think there's a Facebook group somewhere of former employees that just chat and reminisce and long for the place because it was a lovely place to work. So your time there, did that inspire your play Oscars? Well, yes, of course. (laughs) Did you see my play Oscars? I didn't, unfortunately. Shame on you. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, Yeah, I wrote a play um, called Oscars. It's going back a bit now. That's probably seven or eight years ago. And it was set in an old cinema on its final day of business. This was largely influenced by the state of the Odeon cinema in Cheltenham at that time. Oscars was in the play, a cinema that had been built by Oscar Deutsch, who founded the Odeon chain. It was an old former theatre, now a cinema, much like the Odeon in Cheltenham was. And at the time, the Odeon was struggling in trying to maintain its business in this old building that didn't match modern health and safety standards, that had poor disabled access, that was trying to compete with the quality of the newly opened modern multiplex just down the road. So all of this is sort of the background for the play Oscars. Some of the characters had traits of some of the staff from the Odeon at the time. I can't say any one character is based particularly on any members of staff. But, yeah, I borrowed quite heavily from my time at the Odeon. The catchphrase was um, uh, what went on behind the screens, uh, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, The set was influenced by the decor of the Odeon in Cheltenham, right down to some of the details of the screen going into the doors. And, yeah, it was a good play. Uh, The subplot of it was that the Beatles had once played there, as I just mentioned, and that during their gig, during their set, Ringo had lost a cufflink. And all the staff for decades had been looking for this cufflink. If you found that cufflink, that was your lottery ticket. That would, you know, change the world. And I won't tell you what happened at the end of the play. You'll have to come and see it. Definitely. If you put that <laughs> but back the cufflinks on, involved. There you go. <laughs> yeah, if you put that back on, let us know. We will be there. Awesome. From, yeah. Yeah. So let's jump forward in time to 2015 and your one-man show. Now, that must have been something of a daunting thing to do. How much planning did you put into your one-man show? Ah, yes, the one-man show. <laughs> 
that was uh, that was put together just by me to chat to my Malvern audience about where we'd come so far, the plays we'd seen, what we were about to do, and to uh, make a little money. To, if I'm quite honest, I, I've got that I do do talks to various local groups, and I just chat about the theatre. I tell them how I got into it, what I do, where I went to train, my first few years of work, people you've met, the type of work you find yourself doing. Lastly, how that bled into writing plays and producing theatre and where I am now. And the talk can last between sort of half an hour through to two hours, depending on which anecdotes I put in, and people genuinely enjoy it. They recommend the, ch- uh, the talk, they found it informative, entertaining, they laugh a lot, we talk a lot. So the one-man um, show was actually my first sort of foray into that. I thought if people are paying to see this talk in little community halls, maybe they'd pay to see it in a theatre space. So I did it just for one night mostly to tell people about the upcoming plays we were just about to do to build a wooden O in Malvern, which lastly we did at the RSC in Stratford last year. Um, and yeah, it was a good night, good fun. Excellent. So, OK, with the Bristol Old Vic, that's obviously where you learned your craft, what was that like as a drama school? It was great. I, I was quite shy and retiring there. I was one of the youngest people sort of in the group. Uh, it wasn't a large establishment. Um, they had uh, the acting course I was on, the two-year course had uh, eight chaps and four girls. They took on 12 people a year. There was also a three-year acting course. That was for younger students who um, uh, had the potential but not necessarily the experience. So they gave them a middle year of sort of touring theatre to give them some experience. Uh, So the competition for places there was huge, just epically huge. All drama schools, the competition is rife. And at the time, you know, the, the main drama schools in the country... RADA, Lambda, Weber Douglas, Bristolovic, Mayview, the Royal Scottish Academy. You know, places were fought tooth and nail. Um, when I was at the Odeon, I had a break in my employment and I went to university for a year in Canada, in Vancouver. I came back to my job at the Odeon after I'd had my year there and auditioned for the Bristolovic. Uh, I didn't get in. Um, I auditioned there, did a Mercutio speech and a speech from Harvey. Uh, play by Mary Chase, lastly a film with Jimmy Stewart. In the one about, about the, the giant, the invisible, giant invisible rabbit. rabbit. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Elwood P. Dowd. I did a speech from him. Uh, got recalled, got to the sort of short list, and then wasn't taken on. And you go, blast. It's like not passing your driving test. You have to yeah. reapply. Yeah. There are fees involved. It takes a period yes. of time. It's very frustrating. And, of course, there's the self-confidence, the doubt, will I ever get in? And so the following year, I auditioned for six drama schools. I paid all the train fares, paid all the audition fees which you have to pay. I went to London all the time. It cost a bomb. Mm. And uh, three of the schools I auditioned for that year said yes, and three said no. And the last one to say yes was the Bristol Vic, which was always my number one choice. When I went there for my initial audition, it just chimed with me. This ramshackle old Victorian townhouse, two of them that had been knocked into one. It's been extended even further since my time there with 100 coats of paint on every door, chipped so you could see layers of blue and orange and white going back the generations. You thought, I wonder if it was an orange door when Patrick Stewart was here. Maybe it was green when Jeremy (laughs) Irons was here. Um, The class of tuition was amazing because these weren't teachers. They weren't, you know, giving you homework and a degree course. These were working professionals. These were actors. They were just telling you what they knew. And at the time, there was no qualification. There was no certificate at the end. It was a training, like a gymnast or an athlete trains. It was a training. And at the end of it, you got to say, I trained at the Bristolovic Theatre School. You didn't get an A or an A star or a 2-1. I kind of liked that there was no qualification. You just got to say, rubber stamped, well done, son, you made it. And that on your CV 
is usually enough to get you an audition. Which, wow. Yeah. Sorry, as I was saying, Nick, what was the most important lesson that taught you, your time there? Uh, well, the anecdotes that people say about theatre, and indeed which Charlton Heston wrote in his autobiography for me when I asked him to sign it, was know your words, show up on time, and don't bump into the furniture. I will add to that, work hard, be a good bloke, and never be above sweeping the stage. I think when you go for an audition, they sort of assume that you can do the acting part of the job. If you've been to the Bristol Old Vic, if you've got 20 years of credits, you know, doing light comedy, farce, um, classical theatre, Shakespeare, pantomime, whatever, they, they assume your body of work says you can do the job they're looking for. But what they want to know is, can I work with this guy for three months? Is he going to be a pain in the neck? Yeah, Would he mind yeah. making a cup of tea? Is he going to fit well with the company? That's what they want to see in an yeah. audition, I think. And the Bristol of it taught me that. Not just technique, uh, posture, voice, vocal stuff, stage combat, dance, all of those wonderful, wonderful skills, those bag of tricks which you can pull out in an audition. Character, accent, it goes on and on, phonetics, but also how to work in the business, how not to be a cock, a prat, how not to be an idiot in the yeah. business, those things. Do, do you get these people then that get into character and won't step out of character and become a pain in the backside for everybody? Everybody is different. Some people, in order to find themselves comfortable in a performance, have to get into this character's skin. It might involve months of research. I'm going to be playing Algernon in the importance of being earnest. I must wear a cravat for three months and eat nothing but muffins. OK, if that's what you've got to do, do it. Other people would say, never mind the nonsense, just act. Those are the two extremes. And you meet everybody in between. I think there's a common sense approach. Uh, I think if you wear the skin too tightly, there is the possibility of ostracising yourself from the company. And if yeah. you're a bit too precious about things, you mightn't find yourself working for that company again in the future. So be a good bloke. Show up on time. Yeah, yeah. Don't be above yeah. sweeping the stage. So yeah. when you're writing your plays, do you ever get people to say, my character wouldn't say that? No. No, right, OK. No. Because no, no. it'd be gone. <laughs> no, it's not that. Um, <laughs> the plays I have written, and we're up to 24 now, that's a lot of plays. Yeah. I write from the heart about ideas that I find very interesting or funny or uh, experiences that are close to my heart. And I will cast people that I like, that I've worked with before, that I know I get on with, um, a director who I trust um, completely, John, he's brilliant, John Legg, hire him, he's the best director in the world. And if in the rehearsal room somebody says, I'm not sure about this, I'll listen to them because I, I trust their instincts. Yeah. You know, we're a team in the rehearsal room and the final edit of the script will come out of rehearsals. If we shave a bit off here or think mm, we've got to change that, yeah, let's do it. Because why wouldn't you want the end product to be the best possible? Yeah, so you've built a team around you yeah. that you're confident and trust completely. Of course. And we don't have any prima donnas or, you know, yeah. people with huge egos in the company because my company doesn't work like that. Excellent. Um, it, once in a while, you'll find that we don't have the right type of actor for a particular role. We need a 15-year-old boy. Well, I don't know, only 15. Who's got a, who knows somebody that can play young? And I'll ask the company. It's very rare that we audition. So we, we cast a wide net. Who knows who? Oh, well, I know this guy. I did this show with him. Was he all right? Yeah, he was all right. What's he doing now? This, this, this. Great. Ask him if he wants a job. That seems to be how it goes. The adage runs true. It is not what you know. It's who you know. 
and nine out of ten theatre jobs come that way. Yeah. My first job out of Bristol, I'll tell you this, was um, a season of weekly rep in a small theatre in Devon, a town called Sidmouth, a seaside town in, in Devon. And it was run at the time by an old theatrical producer called Charles Vance, a very theatrical bloke. He was wearing a medallion and a cape when I met him. <laughs> he came from Northern Ireland. He'd had bit parts, he would tell you, in some sort of early British films of the 1950s, although I never tracked one down to, to find it. He maintained that the cane he walked about with was given to him by Beerborn Tree. No, it wasn't. The props bloke gave it to him. So he was full of bluster, but he put out a lot of work and I liked him. Weekly rep was a hard apprenticeship, but a great apprenticeship, because you were doing 12 plays in 12 weeks. On a Friday, you would be given your script and told you're playing this part this week, and in the evening you would... Uh, and, and during the day, you would block out the entire play in the bar, which we used to rehearse in at the theatre. In the evening, you'd be doing a performance of the current play. Saturday, you'd have off to learn your lines, and on in the evening, you'd do a performance of the current play. Sunday, you'd have off completely, which was lovely, to learn your lines and, in the, and do nothing in the evening except sweat over learning your lines. Monday, you'd come in and rehearse the entire first act of the new play without your script. In the afternoon, you'd learn your lines. In the evening, you'd do a performance of the current play. Tuesday, it was act two, the same. You'd rehearse without your script. Uh, have Tuesday afternoon off to learn your lines, and in the evening perform the current play Wednesday you'd now rehearse this entire new play that you've learnt in the past four days without your script in the evening do the final performance of the current play after which you take down the scenery put up the new set that the carpenter the scenic artist had been building in the scene dock all week come back in Thursday morning and uh, dress the set put up curtains put in the drinks cabinet brace the doors make sure they didn't wobble put down rugs all that sort of stuff you do a a combined technical and dress rehearsal Thursday afternoon of the new play, and then you were open Thursday night, like it or not. You'd survive by the skin of your teeth. In a wave of euphoria, you'd go and sing karaoke and have a few drinks, and on Friday morning, you'd turn up with a hangover and be handed a script and say, right, you're playing this this week. And so it would go on for 12 weeks. But first job out of drama school, 150 quid a week, acting ASM, which meant you were doing the props and the leafleting and putting up posters as well, but what an apprenticeship, because you've got 12 plays, 12 characters. Guaranteed you're a, a celebrity chef in a Durbridge thriller this week and you kill this guy. Next week you're the romantic <laughs> lead whose wife goes missing. The week after that you're the cad. You know, it, it was wonderful, wonderful situation to run around in, to pull out all these bags of tricks from drama school. It was great. In actual fact, I did three summers there, um, and also got two pantomimes out of Charles as well. One was a big one at the Lyceum in Crewe, where I met Keith Harrison Orville the Duck. I then nice. did six pantos with Keith because he wrote and produced his own pantos. Supposed to be a lovely guy, it's, Keith Harrison. Exactly. He, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He was like Les Dawson and Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom. He had A levels in audience participation. He was just fantastic on stage. He would take anything the audience gave him and run with it. His timing was impeccable. He knew the business. He was marvellous. People will... He's sort of got that aura of being a bit, you know, it's a bit old hat, it's a bit nonsense, it's a yeah. bit fuddy-duddy. I think ventriloquists in this day and age sort of have that sort of aura. But he was from a time where it was an art... Walk around a toy shop with him and see him throw his voice into some toys and confuse the public. I mean, he never, he'd never laughed so hard. He was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant entertainer, a very clever bloke, quick-witted, articulate, intelligent, family man. He, I, I know he'd been through several marriages and had his sort of troubles over the years, but he was happily married when I worked with him, had two young children who are now sort of in their late teens. 
and I learned a lot from Keith Harris. I played the villain for him mostly. He said I was his favourite villain, and I'll take that. Thank you, Keith. And um, he formed, like myself, a tight company of people he knew, trusted, got on with. Kiwi, his company manager, had been with him for decades. Wonderful, wonderful bloke. Every Christmas you'd turn up somewhere. Where are we this year? Are we down in Hampshire or wherever? And it was just lovely to be with him. It was Ronnie, the same dame, Kiwi, the company manager. Keith, off you go again. I was being villainous. And I miss those days. I really do. As I say, I think I did six or five or six, six or seven pantos with Keith. And it was just lovely, just absolutely lovely. He was very fair. He paid above the odds because he knew that there was a lot of money to be made in Panto. He produced them, but he didn't keep it all for himself. He made sure everyone was looked after. I met some wonderfully talented people and did the best Pantos of my career to date with Keith. Love Keith. Brilliant bloke. Very Sadly, fortunate. no longer with us. No so, longer yeah. with us. Uh, very sad about that. Yeah. Um, there, there's a campaign to put a statue of him up in Blackpool at the moment. You can find it online. And I'm a, a big supporter of that. I think our nation's comedy heritage should be remembered. Yeah. Yeah. There's a statue of Eric Morecambe in Morecambe. Tommy Cooper and Gafilly. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie Barker's Four Candles script was sold at auction a few weeks ago for tens of thousands of pounds. These things are important to the nation, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Um, Eric Morecambe sadly passed away at the Roses Theatre in yeah. Chicksbury, as I'm sure you know. And they've got, a, they've got a piano up in the bar in the Roses Theatre in Chicksbury. And I was chatting to one of the trustees not long ago. And it was a suggestion that instead of a little laminated sign on this piano saying, play me, it should be painted out with big words that you see on coffee shop blackboards saying, I'm playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. And that's where it should be. Yeah. So, yeah, celebrate these people, including Keith Harris. Stick a statue of him up in Blackpool because he was brilliant. And if people want to look at it online, do you know where that is? Yeah, they find a Facebook group for it, um, the Keith Harris Memorial Statue Campaign. Just search for it, you'll find it. They've got a big concert going on the end of this month up in Blackpool with some famous faces doing some acts to, again, raise funds. I think his eldest daughter is also performing in the show, which is brilliant. Excellent. Um, I can't make it, sadly. I'm busy, as I would be there. Right. Yeah, good chap. Excellent. We spoke there about carrying a tune. Of course, you do. You've done uh, that music video for Almost a Christmas Song, which oh. I thought was tremendous. Oh, this is going to haunt me now, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, yes, Almost a Christmas Song. Look up Almost a Christmas Song on YouTube, on Amazon, on iTunes. It's all there. We did a video for it. I've uh, seen the video. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. A young Marcos Spalding, an up-and-coming filmmaker, brilliant chap, and directed by John Legg, this director I spoke of. Yeah, I wrote a song. Um, I've played the piano badly since childhood. I can't read music, but I will hammer away and create a tune. I enjoy it. My kids are starting to enjoy it. It's quite nice. And backstage on a pantomime a couple of years ago, my ever-present little black notebook, which I carry everywhere, and I write down things I hear or ideas I have, um, I started writing a couple of notes, thinking that it would probably become a romantic speech. It didn't. It became lyrics. And I thought, oh, dear, um, I've written a, oh dear, I've written a song. Oh, no. Now, I like to think I'm a finisher. There's not many things on the hard drive that are left unfinished. There's a few. There's ideas that just haven't been finished yet. But for the most part, if I write a play, it's because I'm going to see it on stage. I will produce it. I'll get it done. I don't think things should slumber away and never be put on. Otherwise, what's the point in writing them? This was the idea behind the song. Okay, if I've written a song, we'll record the song. So, uh, not knowing a huge amount of musicians intimately, I asked around a bit. I know a couple of people here in Malvern that play at the Great Malvern Hotel, including um, Lewis, bless him, 
the most talented guitarist I've ever met, Lewis Bolton, who also works behind the bar here, Ruben Seabright, sorry, <clears throat> Ruben Seabright, that also worked here for a time, uh, a magnificent guitarist and vocalist. You'll find him gigging in pubs around Worcestershire. Got them in uh, to play guitar on the piece. The very, very talented Hattie Amos, you will have heard her perform piano classically in Worcester at Huntington Hall and elsewhere. She also teaches piano. She came in and took what I had banged away on the piano with and turned it into the most beautiful, <laughs> melodious performance you will ever hear. Uh, Henry, the drummer from the pan. So I, I grabbed a few people and, and managed to pull together some time at the old Smithy Recording Studios in Kemsey in Worcestershire, where uh, they have a history of, of Christmas songs. You know, oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day by... Wizard, was it? Wizard, yes. Wizard. Yeah. Yeah. That was recorded at the Old Smithy okay. in Kemsey, you know, with the school child choir yeah. at the end. Yeah. Well, that was Kemsey Primary School. So anyway, we recorded it in that space, and I tried to sing it. I'm not the, the world's best singer in the world, heaven knows, but I bashed out the tune. And uh, the uh, Woody, the, the technician there, produced it, knocked it into shape. I went back and changed a couple of bits and we, we mucked about with it. But the end product I thought was pretty good. Uh, I liked the lyrics. I liked the idea that, oh, the clocks go back at the end of October and it's early November and it's, it can be a depressing time of year. I get a bit fed up when it's, you get up in the dark and it's dark by 4 p.m. and it's all a bit downbeat and, oh, Christmas advertising starts and there's stress and pressure and all that Christmas hoopla begins and yeah, I don't like when it gets dark early and the nights are a bit too long. So this romantic idea sort of seeped into that because of the lyrics and it became this thing. Anyway, we recorded it. I was pleased with, with the recording. I thought we'd do a video because, well, why not? People mm. on social media will click on something if they can see it rather than if they can just hear it, I think. So we recorded in, in Worcester, got the required permissions, um, put it out there, and it was quite good. Uh, we put it out November the 1st last year, just online, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Spotify, on what else? Amazon Music, mm. iTunes, Vivo, all these places, both the song and the video, just seeing if people would, would watch it. And it was shared and shared and liked and viewed and streamed and downloaded. And by the time New Year's Day rolled around, it had been listened to, streamed or watched 22,000 times. Now, I... I stress it wasn't downloaded and purchased 22,000 times. In fact, I think I made about 40 quid off of it. So, you know, that, that didn't cover the musician's wages. But it got done. Yeah. I'm yeah. pleased it got done. And unlike my plays, which if you wish to stage again, you've got to build scenery for, pay actors, rehearse. You need a rehearsal then. You need to learn the lines again. That's in the can, the music song. It's always there. You can perform it at the push of a button. And you know something? Christmas is coming around again. Yeah. <laughs> so watch out right. for the tweets. We will be again pushing almost a Christmas song. Go to Amazon, buy the thing. Go to iTunes, download it. Make me more than 40 okay. quid. I need it. Yeah. <laughs> so anybody listening, take, take heart at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you don't like it, you can have your money back. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a nice little story around it as well, this unrequited love theme that's yeah. within the song. I think is really well played. Thank you. And, and are those local actors? that appear in the, the piece? Yes, uh, I play the busker playing yes, the guitar. Yeah. I don't play the guitar, incidentally. That was mimed. Um, don't <laughs> criticise it too harshly. Um, the girl, uh, Victoria Lucy, uh, is based in Worcestershire. She's from Devon, talented young actress. She's done various bits for Worcester Rep. Um, she was great as the 
unrequited love. And her bad, villainous boyfriend um, was played by Adrian Ross-Jones, Siren Sester-based, very talented chap. He's been in umpteen of my plays. We go back a long time. And uh, even the supporting cast, there were a few extras, some people we had bumping into, yeah, all local, all people I've worked with before. Um, it was good fun. Mm, that's brilliant. So what's upcoming for you then? Eh? Well, gosh, a busy time of year. Uh, we're about to go into rehearsals for uh, one of my plays. It's called Lost the Plot. It's a dark comedy about two grave diggers, uh, hence the play on the word plot, because obviously this means a certain place in the cemetery. We did it a couple of years ago, actually, myself and the very talented Murray Andrews, Cheltenham-based, brilliant actor, the most talented actor I've ever worked with, damn him. So we play these two grave diggers, cousins, who work in this cemetery in a small village lost in the shires in the southwest of England. Long family connection with the village. They find certain things. There's certain things covered over. There's certain things dug up. There's a lot of money involved. There's coffins. There's bodies. No Ringo's cufflink in this. No it? Ringo's cufflink. It's a little darker than that. It's sort of... It's sort of Breaking Bad meets Open All Hours is what it is. Oh, I mean, where can we see this? Well, we did it in the studio at the Everyman in Cheltenham a few years ago. We've done it here at the Coach House Theatre in Malvern. It is at the Vestatilly Studio at the Swan Theatre in Worcester the end of this month, the 25th to the 29th. And then in November, we're playing the Attic Theatre in Stratford and the Manor Pavilion Theatre in Sidmouth. We return to our roots uh, with this piece. So come along, um, enjoy yourself, be thrilled chuckle slightly and enjoy a bit of new writing because it's something you won't have seen before yeah yeah. sounds fascinating well new writing's a hard sell I think there was a survey done and something like 75 77% of theatre going audiences will only go to the theatre believe this if they've seen the play before they'll only go oh importance of being earnest we like that one we'll go and see that one I'm guilty of that Nick. Hamlet we'll go and see that one oh um, have the other half loves Alan Aitbourne we'll go and see that one They, they won't Go and see something new. It's a hard sell. It yeah. works if you've got somebody off the telly in it, because then they're not going to see the play. They're going to see Jason Donovan. They're going to see Simon Callow. They're going to see Penelope Keith. What play are you here to see this evening? Oh, I don't know. It's the one with Penelope Keith in it. Yeah. But new writing's a hard sell. Once in a while, go and see something that's new with people you don't know, and you'll be surprised. You'll come away going, that's great. When's yeah, the next one? I'll give that a try. I'm as guilty as anybody is what you said. I'm going to have to see Dracula at the end of the month because I know the name. Who's in there? I've no idea, to be quite honest. It's all bright, pointy teeth. <laughs> so, um, Murray Andrews, didn't he work at the Chalamodian? He did. That's my fault. A lot of things are my fault. <laughs> Murray Andrews, bless him, uh, with a name like Murray Andrews, you'd think he was north of the border, but he's just about the most diffident uh, Cheltonian English chap you'll ever find. He's uh, very light in complexion, freckly, got ginger hair, a slight frame. He's got, got all the earmarks of being a Celt, but he's, <laughs> he's very Cheltonian. And he was at Gloscat in Cheltenham at the same time as I, the, the Gloucestershire College of Art and yeah. Technology. It was there that I met him and there that I hated him and we didn't get on at all. I had plastic hair, was very clean cut, wore smart trousers and pretended to be Cary Grant. Uh, he was a bit more like Jethro. He had this wild beard. He was slightly untidy. He smoked. Uh, he had bad teeth. I won't tell you that he never washed his hands in the toilet because that would be ungentlemanly. He was, <laughs> he, he was generally a bit grossy and I didn't like his humour. He didn't like me and after college we went our separate ways. A couple of times during college we sort of looked at each other begrudgingly with a knowing look of, yeah, he's probably all right, but I don't think we ever said it out loud. One day... 
in Winchcombe Street, in Cheltenham, outside the Odeon. I was in my blue bow tie, I think putting out the bins, and Murray Andrews shuffled by, you know, in missing a shoe, in a sort of army coat, unruly, buttons missing, a very untidy chap, and he just stopped and looked at me. And I, in my bow tie and blazer, stopped and looked at him. And we regarded each other for a moment, and I said, hello, Murray. And he <laughs> said, hello, Nick. And I said, do you want a job? <laughs> and he said, yeah. Do you want to be in a play? And I said, yeah. And that was it. A week later, he was uh, at the Odeon in Cheltenham, working in a blue blazer, you know, showing people to their seats, wearing paper towels for socks because he hadn't done the washing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was in a profit share production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. First Shakespeare I did, a company called The Voice Theatre Company. We rehearsed above the Beehive Pub in Montpellier. And it was great. This little tour toward the southwest. That's where I met Adrian Ross Jones, who we've spoken of. And uh, yeah, we've been firm friends ever since. He ushered at my wedding, I was best man at his. We go way back. I think we've done something like 30 different productions together wow. now. Oh, wow. uh, we have a shorthand. I write for him, he acts for me, we know how it works. And I'd bleed for the guy, you know, if he asked me to jump out of a plane. And I don't like flying, I would probably do it. On his 30th birthday, and that's going back uh, 42 years ago now. Um, it was 42 now, I think. On his 30th birthday, myself and Paul Ralph, stage manager at Malvern Theatres, who was in the Voice Theatre Company and latterly worked at the Odeon, who we met at Gloscat, he and I knocked on Murray Andrews' door in Cheltenham and said, put this on. We had a ginger pinstripe suit for him. You're coming with us. And we kidnapped him that day, and we drove to Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> in Northumberland, yeah. Murray Andrews, and we stood him on the wall and said, right, you ginger-haired, Scottish-sounding Celtic git, you decide which side of this wall you belong. And he put up his umbrella and jumped off the wall south, and we decided, all right, you're an Englishman, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that an official test? Uh, yes, uh, it is. Did is you not know? <laughs> they found some ancient stab at Vindolanda describing the process. Yeah. <laughs> you lot are not taking me to office, Dyke. Oh, that yeah. is out. <laughs> Latterly, I'll have you know, I walked the entire length of Hadrian's Wall, 100 miles or so, to research a play called Adrian's Wall, which we staged at the Forum Theatre in Malvern in Traverse, with the audience on either side, with 43 feet of recreated Roman wall down the middle, and did this play. And uh, it was coincidentally the week of the Scottish referendum, so old borders and north and south was very newsworthy. Midlands Today covered that, and Murray was in that play as well. The postscript to that was um, the guy in the play, another guy married the girl in the play, uh, uh, Pip and Rob from Gloucestershire's Rain or Shine Theatre Company. And Rob, bless him, said he didn't want a stag do, but what he'd really like to do before he got married was to walk Hadrian's Wall in the way that the play is set out. So I walked it again with Rob, so I've done it twice now. First time we did it and that production we did for Help for Heroes, and uh, we raised money off of the production and the walk, largely based on an encounter with a soldier chap called Christian Nock who walked the entire coastline of Great Britain for Help for Heroes. That's a different story. But we did raise a couple of thousand pounds for Help for Heroes off the back of that production. So I was very glad that we did that and very happy to have become interested in Hadrian's Wall, uh, largely due to Murray Andrews. So there you go. Given the times we're living in at the moment with everything going on in this country and in America with Orangemen, uh, does that inspire you to write anything about that and the way that 
things are changing? No. You're not a political writer? I'm the least political, least religious man you'll find. I think I'm man, man of the purse, people, man of the people. I like nonsenses. The background to the plays, yes, is they're all, for the most part, contemporary. I've only written one period piece, which is about Shakespeare and the Lord Chamberlain's men. The rest of the plays are contemporary. So, yes, the background is the world we're living in today. Yeah. In 30 years' time, there'll be period pieces because they will be looking back at where we are now, much like Eggborn's plays are. So, so you're more interested in people than politics? Yes, because people surpass politics. The politics of 100 years ago or 200 years ago, we're not really interested in, but we remember the people, you know, the, the historic figures of the past. I think it's a very interesting time at the moment. I think the world is a very strange place at the moment. Personally, I don't believe anything is to be gained by throwing up walls or digging ditches or putting borders in place. I think the world works better when people work together, and I think great things can be achieved by working together. I love the fact that I get pictures every day sent to me by a robot on Mars, and I view it on my phone. This is not something that could have been achieved by one man in a shed saying, no, not working with you, put up a wall. Um, I think that's the future for the human race, and I hope, you know, within a couple of hundred years, things are better than they are now as far as working together is concerned. There you go. That's my take on it. I think that's a brilliant way to end this, because I think that's a... A philosophy, if more people had it, there'd be less angst in this world. comes down to theatre. Theatre is a collaborative process. It is not a one-man thing. Unless you want to write a play for yourself, act it yourself, direct it yourself, costume yourself and perform it in the mirror to yourself, you're not going to go very far. You need other people. You need people to act opposite, to, to write things, to light things, to costume things, to look at it from an outside eye and say, I think it would work better if you do it this way. To perform in front of, you know, theatre is the epitome of working together, a team process, and I'm all in favour of that. Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your time from your busy schedule today. And you've got three new fans here, so we'll be checking for your plays and we'll be coming to see some of those. Thank you. Keep checking on malvinbar.com or follow the social media. You'll see what I'm doing there or thereabouts. Well. Right, we'll let you go back to your writing. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.